Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening. In August 1945, Gladys Lincoln of Sacramento contacted prosperous Dr. W.D. Broadhurst of Caldwell, Idaho, and rekindled a romance from 20 years earlier. After many passionate letter exchanges and several sexually charged meetings, they were married in Reno, Nevada on May 20, 1946. After a passion-filled three-day weekend together, the doctor returned to his home in Idaho and Gladys returned to Sacramento and to her husband, Leslie Lincoln. But Gladys was much more than a bigamist. Gladys needed something even she didn't understand. She married her first husband when she was 20 and her second husband only 14 months later. The second marriage lasted only two years, the third less than 16 months. Leslie Lincoln was her fifth, and Dr. Broadhurst became her sixth. But what desperate need drove her to go from marriage to marriage? Then what dark mindset moved her and her young cowboy chauffeur to commit murder? Find out in Till Death Do Us, the gripping new true crime from Wild Blue Press author Patrick Gallagher, whose grandfather was Gladys's lead defense attorney during her sensational trial. The book that we're featuring this evening is Till Death Do Us, a true crime story of bigamy and murder, with my special guest, author Patrick Gallagher. Welcome to the program, and thank you very much for this interview, Patrick Gallagher. Thank you, Dan. It's my pleasure to join you today. Thank you very much. It's an incredible, fascinating tale. Um, Back in the 40s in the United States, in small-town America, Let's get right to this. Um, you start off about May, May 19, 1927, and uh, Gladys June Rouse 
And she's 20, uh, you have it, she's 20 years old, and she's living in Minidoka, Idaho, population 200. But tell us a little bit about her background with her parents, William and Anna, and her four siblings. Tell her, tell our audience a little bit about her background and uh, just a little bit how she grew up. Well, Gladys uh, was uh, the middle of five children. She had four brothers, so she was the only girl in a strong Mormon family. And uh, uh, all of her brothers married well and successfully, but uh, somehow or other, Gladys didn't seem to achieve that. And and I I wonder how much that early upbringing had to do with her. Um, you know, I have uh, no evidence of anything inappropriate happening when she was young, but at one point she did make a comment that. Uh, she was used to being hurt, so there may have been something there. But the um, main thing is that Gladys grew up in a, a fairly normal family, but um, she married young and she married often. You say, too, that her family really took uh, the, the Mormon uh, religion very seriously, and she didn't take it so seriously at all. Um, you say, it seems to be more early... of a... Yeah. Yeah, you talk about early marriage, too. May 19th, 1927, she's 20 years old. Um, tell us a little bit about this marriage to William Basil Hendricks and how long it lasted. Well, uh, Gladys was, uh, as we mentioned, only 20. That wasn't extremely young for those days. Even today, no. a lot of girls get married in, by the time they're 20. But... Uh, um, uh, her her marriage lasted such a short amount of time. Uh, it seems to me that it must have been uh, not good from the very beginning. And, um, of course, uh, I've tried to make the book as true as possible. Uh, at one point, I, I considered trying to add more to the story that was fiction, but I gave that up uh, because I decided that my goal was to make this book as completely accurate historically as possible. And so I don't know much about her marriage other than the fact that it lasted such a brief amount of time. But then she married again so quickly right afterwards. Mm -hmm. You say in August 6, 1928, so less than a year later, and she was residing in Burley, Idaho. Um, you say in less than two and a half years, uh, she was divorced again, but in Burley, she met uh, a person she called a sweetheart, a young doctor chiropractor named Willis David Broadhurst, WWD, as he wanted to be addressed, and he had a chiropractic clinic in Burley. Um, how did they meet? How did the doctor and Gladys meet, and what did they do once they did? How was their relationship? What was characteristic of it? Well, I'm, I'm quite sure that Gladys was a patient of the doctors in his chiropractic practice, and uh, uh, but they were all both Mormon, so it could have been that they met at church as well. Um, uh, this relationship didn't last a long time, but of course uh, she's still married to another man. And uh, again, we have to read between the lines from the facts that we know, and it's very possible that she engaged in an affair with a doctor, at least emotionally, 
and that resulted in her second divorce. Uh, it also resulted in the doctor leaving town. So that leads me to think that uh, there really was something that went on there. He moved from Burley, which is in southeastern Idaho, to Caldwell, Idaho, which is way west, uh, southwestern Idaho, very close to the Oregon border. Mm-hmm. Now, you say at the end of the second marriage, Gladys had the next seven years officially unmarried. And interestingly, she toured and sang. She's a multi-instrumentalist and played in something called the Ralph's Novelty Orchestra. That's right. Ralph's was her maiden name. And uh, her parents and her brothers were all quite musical. And they had a band that traveled around, mostly in California. And uh, it appears that uh, she engaged these next seven years uh, unmarried and traveling with the band and and probably enjoying a pretty good normal life at that time. Mm-hmm. You say the next man that she marries is a, name, a man named Carol Anderson. Um, they were, unlike some of her partners, they were similar in age. She was, they were one year apart in age, and they married in January 30th, 1939. And at that time, she invented a new middle name for herself, which was Elaine. Um, and they were in Westwood, California, um, home of the new campus of the UCLA how did Gladys feel about moving from this small place, Burley, 5,000 population, to Sacramento? Well, for a woman like Gladys, who enjoyed the company of men and enjoyed uh, being going out and going to shows, going to movies, uh, going to dances, uh, moving from a small town in Idaho to down in California was a pretty heady experience. I think she really enjoyed that. She enjoyed the limelight. She enjoyed going out. Um, that wasn't good for her marriage, but I think she enjoyed uh, the broader field that she recognized down there. As far as her middle names go, I find that very interesting. Her birth certificate had no middle name at all. When right. she married her first husband, William, uh, she chose a middle name of June. But now, when she marries this last guy, this next gentleman, uh, now all of a sudden, it's Elaine. So it shows that Gladys is, uh, feels pretty free to alter the facts to suit her feelings and opinion at the time. Right. You write that she um, likes big, strong men, and there's a big modern sawmill in the, in the, in the town, and the Paul Bunyan's from Westwood, California. But you talk about the fourth marriage to a gentleman named Virgil D. Warren, June 9, 1940, 16 months after her third marriage. And you write that she was married at a Baptist church. Meanwhile, she's Mormon, just evidence that she doesn't take her religion as seriously as many would, I guess, or many do. And this Virgil is 28 years older, and he also worked at this uh, sawmill. Um. What was, again, what was this, how long did this marriage last, and what was there anything um, interesting about this marriage, incidental about this marriage? Well, even? I think what's interesting, Dan, about this marriage is that this husband also works in this big sawmill. And, of course, it was the biggest, most modern uh, sawmill in the world. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, uh, this company used the story of Paul Bunyan as kind of their theme, uh, 
people always raise their eyebrows when I tell them that because they equate Paul Bunyan with, you know, Minnesota and Wisconsin and that part of the world. But um, he actually, the stories actually uh, emanated uh, from this mill. They they use his stories as as advertising material. And but this next husband now he's he works in the same mill, so that's got to have caused some real raised eyebrows around there. Did she have an affair with him? Uh, did her current husband know him? Uh, if they didn't right. know each other, they surely knew people who knew both of them. So I think that must have really been quite a quite a, a uh, subject of gossip around the mill in those days. Mm-hmm. You say within a year, Gladys moves back to Sacramento and files for divorce. World War II, meanwhile, is in full force. Who does Gladys meet uh, just around that time? Another tough, strong man. Who does Gladys meet? That's right. That's right. Another big, strong guy named Leslie Lincoln. And Leslie was a lieutenant in the Army. And uh, they were actually married on base at uh, Fort Ord down in California. And uh, shortly after they were married, Leslie was uh, sent off to the East Coast to serve there, and uh, Gladys remained behind. She lived briefly with her mother-in-law, but most of the time she lived on her own while her husband was away at the war. And uh, there's no evidence that he actually was in combat. Uh, I believe that he served his time in Washington, D.C., but... He was gone from home. And so, uh, in a way, that was kind of a new, exciting experience for Gladys. She was married, but she didn't have the husband to to have to take care of and be near her. Mm -hmm. She had the freedom. What was interesting, too, is when, on the marriage license, when they put occupation, what are some of the things that Gladys put, interestingly, on that marriage license? Well, she put that uh, uh, she'd been a teacher, and uh, I've never found any evidence that Gladys ever uh, was gainfully occupied other than her time served traveling with her family band. I've Mm -hmm. I've never seen any evidence that Gladys uh, worked in any capacity other than as a musician. Yes. We talked about uh, just a minute ago about the two and a half years of freedom that that Gladys enjoyed until Leslie was discharged in 1944. They moved to Taft, California until October 1945, and then they went to Sacramento. And Gladys wasn't having much fun, apparently. There was a new issue between that uh, Leslie had to discover. What was that issue? about Gladys that he discovered? Well, it turns out that uh, Gladys had become addicted to a sleeping drug called Nimbutal, which uh, uh, was a medication prescribed for to help people with sleeping, but it also was a very deadly medicine if taken in large quantities and was actually used uh, to commit executions when... Uh, People on death row were executed. This drug was used for that purpose sometimes. So it was a bad drug, and she had become addicted to it. Mm-hmm. Now, August 20, 
1945, you write, Gladys sends a telegram to somebody she knew from the past. Who does she send a telegram to? And you write that the message was never found, but likely the message, um, just the the intent of the message would be what? Tell us about this telegram. Well, uh, Gladys has a little bit change of pace here. And previously, looking for new husbands, she always found somebody newer and younger and stronger. But this time, uh, she looked to her past and she sent an email, uh, excuse me, a telegram. They didn't have emails in those days. No. Uh, she sent a telegram to Dr. Willis David Broadhurst in Caldwell, Idaho. And she rekindled the relationship that they'd had 20 years earlier when they were in Burley, Idaho. Right. Now, she determined something. You write that, and you get inside her mindset, but it's obvious that she does have some things that she needs to address before she can be successful in attracting this new paramour, this this person from the past. Um, what were those things that she knew that she had to have in order to be able to appeal to this doctor? Well, the first thing is she had to convince the doctor that she was not after his money. He had become quite wealthy. In fact, right. uh, by this time now, 20 years after their earlier relationship, he'd moved to Caldwell. He'd been very successful. Uh, he still had his successful chiropractic practice, um, but he also had become a landowner. He owned a dairy farm uh, in Caldwell, Idaho, where he lived. He didn't do the dairy work. He farmed, he leased it out to another dairyman, but he owned 160 acres there in Caldwell, right uh, just on the outskirts of town. Uh, he also had purchased a large cattle ranch in eastern Oregon uh, that was measured in sections. He had several sections of land, thousands of acres of land, where he ran cattle and had a ranch out there as well. And the doctor um, had been very successful, and really his dream was to retire from his chiropractic work and to become a full-time rancher. And so, you know, he loved working on the ranch and, uh, and engaging in all the cattle drives and the haying and everything like that. So he's very wealthy at this point. Gladys uh, can't look like a gold digger, so she has a solution. She uh, informs the doctor that she has inherited $3 million from her Aunt Mary Johnson, who lived in Hawaii and had bequeathed to her her estate worth $3 million. So therefore, that makes her much more wealthy than the doctor, and she thinks that will eliminate any thoughts on his part that she's marrying him for his money. What about her stated marital status, which was pretty interesting. What'd she say regarding that to him? Well, of course, she can't marry the doctor if she's still married. And, no. uh, and, and of course, she doesn't even want the doctor to know how many times she's been married. And so she concocts this uh, story that her husband was killed in London during World War II and that he had a twin brother, an identical <sighs> twin brother, who was a very evil guy, and he had learned of her inheritance from her Aunt Mary, 
and he was trying to assume the identity of her dead husband, Leslie Lincoln, and uh, thereby gain access to this huge inheritance that she had coming. And I think the reason that she created this story is if for any reason the doctor should come into contact with Leslie, she would be able to explain that, well, that's not really Leslie. That's my dead husband's twin brother. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So she had a ready-made excuse in case something like that happened. So Leslie doesn't know about this correspondence. And that correspondence between her and the doctor is continuing. What happens, how does Leslie find out about this and what's his reaction? Well, as you, I think you mentioned earlier, uh, Gladys and the doctor went to, met in Reno, spent this three-day weekend there, got married, and returned home. Uh, he was thrilled that he had a new wife and she's an attractive woman and younger than him. She was 11 years younger than the, the doctor. So he was quite thrilled with his new status and he was uh, quite a letter writer and he wrote her a bunch of letters. And Gladys did her best to intercept those letters, but sooner or later she missed one and Leslie found it. Leslie actually found the letter from the doctor and a letter from the doctor's wife that uh, showed that Gladys had now gone and created bigamy and married this doctor while still married to Leslie. So at that right. point, everything blew up in their face. Now, there's a person named Leo O'Shea, and this will be interesting much later in this conversation. How does he fit into this around this time as well? Well, Dan, I, I'm reading between the lines on this again. But uh, to me, the evidence points to the fact that she must have had some sort of relationship with Leo O'Shea at this time. So she's married to Leslie. She's, I guess, courting the doctor is the word to use here, at least trying to entice him. And, and had some sort of relationship with Leo, whether they were next door neighbors, lived across the street, uh, knew each other through some other means, or even maybe had an affair. I, I don't know the truth on that, but 
Very clearly, she knew knew Leo at the same time. However, uh, that ended, and she uh, went and married the doctor. And ultimately, when everything blew up, when Leslie found out about it, uh, she contacted the doctor, and he came down and rescued her from the evil twin that he called that brute in one of his letters. So how does their relationship proceed uh, and the divorce from Leslie proceed? Well, after Gladys gets back to Idaho with the doctor, uh, when he picks her up, she's really, really done a number with these drugs, and she's groggy. She can't function very well. Uh, He's extremely alarmed. He takes her. Spend a couple nights in a hotel to kind of help dry her out a little bit and then takes her back to Idaho where he enlists the aid of another uh, general practice doctor who's familiar with uh, these drugs. And uh, they, they do get her back on her feet to where she's functioning much more normally. And, uh, and then they go to Jordan Valley. It's haying time. Jordan Valley, by the way, is the very small town in Idaho uh, where the ranch is. Uh, today it has 175 residents. In those days it might have been a little bit bigger, but it wasn't very big. But they had all this acreage outside of town there. And um, so they're doing really well. However, uh, Leslie, of course, um, now that he's discovered his wife has committed bigamy, uh, he's suing her for divorce. And the sheriff in Idaho is given papers to serve on Gladys, divorce papers from Leslie. And the sheriff doesn't find her because she's in Oregon at this time at the ranch. But when she learns the sheriff has been looking for her, uh, she realizes she'd better get back to California and settle this divorce issue with Leslie before everything really goes crazy and the doctor learns everything that will spoil all of her plans. So she needs to get back there and settle this divorce. And how does she arrange to be able to do that and cover her true intentions? Well, there's a problem here, Dan. Gladys doesn't drive. Now, I don't know if she doesn't drive because of her drug addiction or if she just never learned how to drive, especially in the the, uh, 40s, 30s and 40s. A lot of women... Mm -hmm didn't drive, or some women didn't drive, might be she never learned. But for whatever reason, she doesn't drive, so she needs someone to drive her down there. Um, The doctor says, well, uh, I I don't have time to take you down there. Uh, I mean, I could be gone two or three days, but we're we're getting into our haying season now, and I've got to be here. And she says, well, it'll take a week or ten days. The doctor says, "I, I, I can't be gone that long. Well, uh, she says, I need someone to drive me. How about Jack Gallagher? Well, Jack Gallagher, who's no relation of mine, but has the same last name, he was a ranch hand. But he was uh, about the same age as Gladys, and the doctor wasn't too keen on that idea. He didn't think that uh, having his wife go down there with his hired hand for a week or two uh, would look good and probably wouldn't go well. So... Uh, he he nixed that idea. So they looked at several other options. 
And they finally settled on a young cowboy named Alvin Williams, who was an occasional ranch hand for the doctor. Uh, he was only 23 years old. He was, he was just a boy, really. Uh, not a lot of experience in life. And just, his goal in life was to be a cowboy. That's what he wanted to do. And uh, the doctor decided that he didn't think it would be a problem if, if Alvin would be willing to be her chauffeur. So he asked Alvin if he would drive Gladys down to California so she could take care of her business. Now, of course, she couldn't tell the doctor that the reason she was going was because of this divorce. So she told mm -hmm. him that the reason she had to go was to settle legal matters for this $3 million estate that was pending coming from her Aunt Mary. Right. They left August 5th, 1946, and they arrived in Reno. And immediately upon arriving, they went to dinner and a movie. Because, as you write, we didn't mention this, Gladys loves the movies. And she was affected greatly by a couple movies, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But she had her favorite movie stars, Ingrid Bergman and Betty Davis, and she loved the movies. So they're there in Reno, and they go to a movie and a dinner. And she suggests what in terms of uh, living accommodations? Well, she says, well, Alvin, uh, pretty late. We don't really need to check in the hotel. Let's just drive out in the country on the outskirts of town there and find a place to park, and uh, we'll just sleep in doctor's car. They've got the doctor's car. It's a... It's a very nice, modern, big car and very comfortable. So Alvin says, well, that'd be all right. And, and so they pull out into the country and find a secluded spot and, and hunker down for the night. But uh, uh, it doesn't take long till Gladys starts seducing this young cowboy. She tells him, man, you look, you look so much like my little brother that uh, I just can't get over how much you look like my little brother, Buddy. And uh, um, she says, can I give you a little brotherly kiss? And he says, okay. And so she kisses him on the cheek. And then she kisses him on the lips. And from that time on, the whole rest of the trip, they sleep together. It's interesting, the next day, they drive to Truckee, California, where Gladys's brother, Sterling, owns a campground and so he assigns him a cabin for Alvin and, and Gladys a tent and she asks Alvin to sleep with her right away this seems to be just uh, one of the events where she doesn't really uh, pay it or doesn't really care for people if people see which her behavior um, as evidenced by this campground in front of her brother Yes, what uh, well, I, I don't know if her brother was aware they were sleeping together. Um, Alvin would come into her tent uh, after it got dark, and then he'd get up early in the morning and go back to his little cabin. Um, but, but they certainly um, did everything together, and she sat on Alvin's lap, and she was very familiar with him in a way that is quite inappropriate for a married woman with another man. So right. I agree with you completely, Dan. She really didn't care what people thought. Mm -hmm. They go to a, a movie when they're on their trip here, 
the postman always rings twice. Uh, as you write about it, what's this movie about that they go see? It's about a it's about a uh, uh, a man and his wife who own a diner, and uh, they hire an employee, and the wife becomes infatuated with that employee, and they have a very torrid affair, and ultimately they decide to murder her husband, the owner of the diner, and um, which they do. Uh, it doesn't end well for either one of them, of course, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, after the movie gets out and Gladys and Alvin are driving away, her comment to Alvin was, gee, it's too bad something like that can't happen to the doctor. And from that point on, Gladys begins persuading Alvin to murder her husband. Yeah. It's uh, fascinating, too, again, when we talk about that she does not care what anybody, including her husband, thinks. Um, They have a visit with her brother, Gene. Like I said, I think it's Sterling or Gene, as you would call him. What does she do in terms of taking, what does she do with the WD's money, her husband's money, on this trip? Besides going to movies and dinner, what else does she do for her cowboy chauffeur? Well, uh, he he liked being a cowboy and wanted to dress nicely, so she outfitted him with uh, all new Western wear, with boots and and Levi's, of course, not Wranglers. You, good cowboys don't wear Wranglers; they wear Levi's, <laughs> and uh, and a fancy uh, black shirt with white piping around the pockets and, and the cuffs and, and the edges, and uh, a cowboy hat. Uh, she decks him out just fine. Um, she's quite enjoying the freedom of having the doctor's money that he's sending her and, uh, and driving the doctor's car. The doctor's paying all the expenses for this, this trip. Mm-hmm. And like you say, this trip is supposed to be for 10 days or so, but it goes goes on much longer. Um, what are the, some of the kinds of things that they discuss in her persuasion of, with Alvin to, to commit this murder? What are the kinds of things that she does to offer ammunition on her behalf? Um, especially interesting, her warping of the Ten Commandments. That's right. She asked Alvin, she, you know, Alvin, to start with, Alvin was very reluctant to murder the doctor. And uh, he never would have done such a thing. It had not been for her persuasion. I know that. But uh, uh, she has got such powerful control over Alvin. She really has him wrapped around her finger. And so she uses a number of different tactics to persuade him to go with this. And one of them is she asks Alvin if he's ever read the Bible. Well, no, he admitted he, he never really had done much Bible reading. Uh, so she advised him that she actually was a minister of the gospel. I don't know if she'd ever done anything that would qualify her as a minister of the gospel, but that was her claim to Alvin. And she told him that the Ten Commandments, uh, if you break any one of the Ten Commandments, you might as well break them all because... 
once you've broken one Ten Commandment, you're a sinner and you're guilty. And so right. since Alvin was already committing adultery, then committing murder wouldn't be any worse because he'd already broken the Ten Commandments. So that was one of her attempts to persuade him. Did she mention anything else and sweeten the sort of uh, the deal with any details about abuse? She did, and I think of all the things she told Alvin, this perhaps may have been the most persuasive. She told Alvin that the doctor was cruel to her, that he beat her, and that he was just an animal and didn't deserve to live. And, uh, of course, none of that is true. The doctor never, he so infatuated with her, he never treated her badly. But uh, Alvin believed her, and I do think that was very persuasive for him. Now, meanwhile, Leslie finds out that Gladys is in, back in Sacramento and where she is staying. So he calls the hotel and tries to arrange a meeting with her. And Gladys agrees to meet him in the lobby. I thought this was amazing. She introduces Alvin, but tell us a little bit about this exchange where Alvin is initially there, but the exchange between Leslie and Gladys in that hotel. Well, uh, Leslie and, and Gladys um, met there in the hotel. She took Alvin with her, as you mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. um, but then uh, Leslie said that he wanted to talk to her alone and, and told Alvin to get out of there, which Alvin did. He went into the bar and had a drink. And uh, Leslie and uh, Gladys um, decided that they would... Uh, meet with their joint lawyers and sign the papers necessary uh, for the divorce to go through. Now, with that, she there was an original intention uh, or intention for her to go to be able to kind of cover her tracks. Was she finished with that mission now that she had met with Leslie? Was she free to go back? Uh, she'd, had she covered her tracks? Yes, I think she had. And and there's no reason why they shouldn't just now head back to Idaho. But but they don't. And my guess is that's because she's having so much fun. And so Alvin and Gladys travel uh, all over California. They go down to Southern California. They go to Taft. They go up to Truckee. They go to Sacramento. Um they're just having a great time. They go to movies, they go to dances, they eat in nice restaurants, and and this uh, 10 days to two-week trip actually lasted seven weeks. They were gone seven weeks on this joyride. How does she explain that, and is there any, or, or is there any explanation and correspondence between her and WD and what does she, how does she account for this extra incredible four weeks added to this trip? You know, I don't think she accounts for it at all. I don't see her ever giving him any good explanations. And he's, wow. the doctor is just, he's lonely and he's heart sick. And uh, he doesn't understand why she's doing this, but... Uh, he's very lonely and he writes her a lot of letters while they're on this trip and he constantly tells her 
I don't understand, but I trust you completely. I don't understand why you aren't here. I miss you. I'm just so lonely without you, but I trust you completely. I know you're doing the right thing. So the doctor's response to me is very perplexing. And, uh, and I don't think she ever really gives him a good explanation for why she's gone so long. She even tells him how much, how nice Alvin has been treating her, has been uh, during the trip. And then she proposes to take, for him to take a bus and meet them and the, that they would return together, her and uh, WD. And, and also she spoke of some kind of present that she had gotten for him. So what, could he, what did he make of this? Uh, you know, I just don't know. I mean, she tells him repeatedly, I've got a present for you, something really special, but uh, I never see the present produced. I don't see that she ever really did uh, give him a present. And, uh, uh, and as you said, she does invite him down to Truckee to spend the, the holidays down there with him. And uh, so he comes down and... Uh, and they go to a rodeo, and Alvin competes in the rodeo. He gets he wins first prize for bear bronc riding, and uh, uh, they spend time there. And then he takes the bus home. You know I don't understand that because she said come down on the bus and we'll go home together. But something happened while they were there that persuaded him uh, to go back alone without his wife. He does have a meeting with Alvin, and he talks to Alvin and, and pays him off and says, you know, as soon as this is over, uh, I want you to be gone. Uh, but, but he does not get his wife to go back with him. Yeah. Now, what happened September 17th, 1946 with Gladys? Coach me, Dan. Uh, what, they what drove are we to Reno. To? They drove to Reno. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, in the midst of all this, after the doctor returns to Idaho, Gladys and Alvin uh, go to Reno, and they get married. So now Alvis has committed trigamy, which I had to look it up to see if it's a real word, and it is a real word. She was married to three men at the same time, to Leslie, to Dr. Broadhurst, and to Alvin. She uh, used a false name. She didn't use her real uh, married name. She used the name Elaine Hamilton. Uh, Alvin used his real name, and they were married there in Reno. She, uh, they decide to head back, but she decides to visit her attorney, D.D. Decoe. Uh, why would she do that? What, what was the purpose of that? So I think the reason for visiting with her attorney was to finalize the divorce matters that they had going on there and uh, just to make sure that he was available for anything she needed down there in California. So when she was back in Idaho or Oregon, if anything came up, the attorney would be on the case and, and be available to take care of it. Now, Gladys and Alvin are discussing murder. Now, one of their ideas involved WD's cattle ranch. What what was the idea 
that they were formulating regarding cattle and murder? Well, Gladys uh, and Alvin, they talked about a variety of different ways of murdering the doctor. Once she's finally gotten him persuaded to do it, now they're trying to come up with, you know, the method. And uh, she says, well, maybe while he's out riding, you can you can find him and and kill him. But uh, uh, that doesn't seem to work too well because they don't know how well that how successful they would be in that and how they would dispose of the body and everything. So uh, uh, then they come up with a plan of uh, the doctor every fall goes on a hunting trip, usually a, a two-week elk hunting trip with a group of buddies, at kind of an annual tradition. And so she right. says, well, maybe you can find your way up to where the hunting party is and kill a doctor. But that one doesn't seem to work too well because Alvin doesn't even really know where that would be. And uh, and so they finally settle on a plan that after they get back to, to Idaho, when the doctor advises that he'll be leaving the next day to go to the Oregon ranch, that Alvin would leave ahead of him and park on the side of the road and pretend that his car was uh, disabled and lure the doctor to pull over. And while they're out there in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of sagebrush country, that Alvin would do the doctor in. So that was their plan that they settled on. Right. When they returned back from their trip, and uh, you you mentioned that... uh, WD has a conversation with Alvin and says, you know, you've done this and now here's your money and I want you gone. But what is the behavior between Gladys and Alvin, even in the home of WD, after they return? And and we need to explain that the living arrangements that they have in uh, JD's home with his nephew Floyd and his wife Lola, which is important. That's right. Um, the doctor has a nice house outside of Caldwell where the 160-acre dairy farm is, and he's got a nephew named Floyd who's also a chiropractor that is has moved there and is going to take over the doctor's medical practice. And so um, even before the doctor married Gladys, they were living together, the doctor and his nephew and his, the nephew's family. So when they get back from this long trip, whenever the doctor's there, Alvin kind of stays away or stays quiet in the background at the very least. But when the doctor's away from home, they they just show no shame. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Lola observes Gladys sitting on Alvin's lap. Uh, they She observes them uh, when they think she's not looking to hug and kiss. And so uh, she is Lola, the nephew's wife, is very disturbed by all that she sees, but she doesn't know how to react to it. You know, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Um, she and her husband talked about it a lot, but they didn't think that maybe, maybe they just weren't sure if it was the right thing to make a big deal of it to the doctor because the doctor was so obviously happy with his new wife. And so they really didn't say much. Yeah. On uh, just before... They, the, the doctor and his nephew have plans to leave that Friday on their elk hunting trip. 
normally would be two weeks. On the Tuesday, what does Gladys say to WD um, well, she's, on the grounds that she's concerned for him? What does she say to him, remarkably? Well, she says, doctor, she says, you know, you need to have a will. If, if something happens to you on this hunting trip, I, I, would be, I wouldn't have enough money to even bury you. Of course, you know, at this point, I'm wondering what happened to the $3 million, but that doesn't sure. come up in this discussion. And, wow. uh, and so she says, you need, to, you need to get a will before you leave. And the doctor says, well, there's nothing going to happen to me, but she is really adamant and she's really upset and makes a big deal of it. So the doctor goes into town, hires a lawyer, goes to his lawyer, and draws up a new will that cuts out every other relative he has and leaves everything he owes, owns to Gladys. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And so he does that before he leaves for the hunting trip. Incredible. Alvin calls and invites Gladys and J.D. to a movie. Does he go? Does he go to the movie that that night? He did, but he he really did not want to. He was was not fond of Alvin Alvin calling and and setting up uh, events with his wife. But Gladys says, well, if you don't go, I'm going without you. And he didn't want to have his wife going with Alvin without him. So he went. And they went to a movie and they also went to a dance. But uh, he was very disturbed by this and, and uh, just confused by what's going on. So he got a, a, a late start the next day. But uh, when does Alvin arrive at the home? Well, uh, Alvin called on the phone. And Gladys says, well, no, they haven't left yet, but uh, you can come, you know, later this afternoon. So after the hunting party departs, Alvin shows up and Gladys says that he's sick and she needs to tend to him. So uh, she puts Alvin in the doctor's bed and gives him a sponge bath. And uh, all the while, Lola the nephew's wife, the nephew went on the hunting trip also, uh, Lola is just appalled by what she's observing here. And she just can't believe that Gladys is treating her beloved uncle in such a fashion. It's interesting, Lola, too, 
actually becomes friends with this woman and doesn't say anything to her brother, but she doesn't trust this woman at the same time. It's very interesting. What does uh, Gladys tell her about, again, this big love of movies? What movie do they discuss? And what does she say about um, her ability to take the life of someone else? Well, um, she talked about a movie where a woman had uh, uh, killed killed uh, her her child, I think it was, and uh, and and her question to Lola was, "Do you think you could ever kill somebody?" And Lola was quite appalled by the question, and she said, "Of course not. I can never do such a thing." Uh, but it gave a little insight into the thinking of Gladys. Clearly, murder was on her mind. Yeah. She also asked uh, Lola uh, another very interesting question about men and husbands. And uh, Lola responded how much she loved her husband. And Gladys said, I hate men and I hate sex. And I don't know why I ever got married again. Wow. And yet, uh, that doesn't seem to apply to Alan. That's what I find most curious. Yeah. Now, back with the plan, uh, Gladys thinks that they need a vehicle. They don't want to use WD's car. Amazingly, they realize that it's not such a great idea, but she needs to buy him a car. And uh, so what else besides, what do they do in terms of going to get this car and this plan? And what else does he do when he goes back? What does he retrieve from his home, his parents' home in Parma as part of this plan? Well, they uh, they hunt around, they go to Boise, and they look for cars, and ultimately they find a young man that's got a, an old Model T Ford for sale, and they buy that, and included in that is, is some tools in the trunk, including a big, heavy crescent wrench, which uh, comes into play later on. Um, but then they also uh, drive out to Alvin's parents' home, in another little town nearby called Parma. And uh, Alvin goes in and he retrieves a bedroll and he also gets a shotgun from the house. And uh, um, and they then take those and go back, uh, back to uh, WD's ranch. Right. Uh, you, you write that during this uh, two-week period, Lola... Um, Gladys and Alvin would go out to to the movies. They'd go for drinks. They'd go out for dinner. They went to dances. And she would observe them um, cavorting with each other at these clubs, wouldn't Lola, at that time? That's right. And, and she later testified that uh, her reason for doing that was twofold. Number one, the doctor had specifically asked her to make friends with Gladys in his attempt to make Gladys feel welcome. So she was kind of following through with the doctor's wishes with that. But she also had her own motive, which was she really wanted to see what was going on between these two. She wanted to understand as fully as she could what what the relationship between Gladys and Alvin was. All right. You talk about the divorce decreed finally finalized October 1st, 1947, uh, between her and Leslie Lincoln. And then... Um, 
she was still talking about convincing Alvin, and now she was talking about buying him some whiskey to calm his nerves during this. Uh, and also that uh, when they returned, when the hunters returned October 11th, again, it was very interesting that he refused to sleep because of what? Well, because it was the sheets weren't clean. It was soiled. Alvin had been sleeping in his bed, and some other, somehow or other he knew that or perceived it, and, and uh, he was just... He was disturbed, I think, to even see that Alvin was still hanging around. And so he refused to sleep with his wife that night. Wow. So how, what, how do they continue with their plans? What things do they uh, settle on in terms of how they're going to do this deed and when and some of the particulars? Well, as we've mentioned, uh, they did decide that the plan would be for Alvin to waylay the doctor en route between Caldwell, Idaho, and the Jordan Valley Ranch, and uh, he would murder the doctor at that time. The plan was he would uh, pretend his car was broken down, and, and when the doctor would stop to give him aid, that he would kill the doctor at that time. Um, but again, as you mentioned, Alvin was still, I mean, he was on board, but he was still really reluctant and nervous about this. So Gladys asked him if he thought that if he had some whiskey to drink, if that would help him, and he said he thought it might. So she had to go buy a liquor license. In those days, you had to have a, had to have a liquor license in order to buy wow. alcohol. And, of course, they had state-run liquor, liquor stores in those days, and she bought a couple bottles of whiskey for Alvin, and uh, he used those to steal his nerves while he was waiting for the doctor. Mm-hmm. Now, the plan goes awry just because uh, W.D. doesn't go directly where he's supposed to go. He, he visits a friend, so it's a detour. And meanwhile, Alvin is waiting on the side of the road uh, before 8 a.m. So tell us what... Yeah, uh, Alvin gets there in the middle of the night. Yeah, uh, so what does J.D. do in terms of the in delaying this these murderous plans for Alvin and Gladys? And... What happens on the side of the road in terms of people or a person seeing Alvin on the side of the road? The doctor announced on Sunday evening, I'm I'm going to the other ranch tomorrow. So Gladys tells Alvin, get out there and get it done. And for God's sake, if you don't succeed, don't come back. So Alvis gets out there in the middle of the night and has his bedroll and he kind of sleeps in the car waiting for the doctor to get there. But Monday morning, the doctor, he's not very cooperative here. He putters around and takes care of a bunch of errands and and finally heads out late Monday morning. Then he only drives to the next town and he goes into a restaurant and he orders breakfast. And there he meets with a man that's going to help him do some work on the ranch. And they have a nice meal together and visit and talk and... and uh, and so it's it's mid-afternoon before the doctor gets going and heads for the ranch. Meanwhile, Alvin's sitting on the side of the road waiting. There's a, a farmer who's a neighbor of the doctor's who he and one of his employees go from that farmer's ranch out to some fields to do some work, and they pass Alvin. 
and then they come back for lunch to go, they come home for lunch, and they still see Alvin sitting there. Um, the farmer leaves and takes care of business, but the employee goes back to the field and sees Alvin for the third time. And that time he stopped. He said, have you got a problem? Can I help you with anything? And Alvin says, no. He says, I, I got somebody coming to, to help me. I got a, my car's broken down. So the, that ranch hand heads on back to the ranch. So Alvin has been seen by at least three local neighbors or two, three times by two local neighbors who have, uh, who, who can identify him. I find it most strange that Alvin didn't abandon the plan at that time, but he didn't. Yeah. yeah. And now, meanwhile, Gladys at home with the observant Lola, Lola, what is, what are the kinds of things that she is doing, but also saying uh, to Lola again, to cover her tracks? Well, I think she takes her sleeping drug again. She's pretty drugged up, and uh, or it might just be emotions, but uh, she's just mumbling and and staying in bed, and 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 she tells Lola she's worried about the doctor because because uh, a guy named Red Wells had threatened him, and she just isn't sure if something might happen to the doctor. And it's all very strange behavior to Lola. She doesn't understand it at all. Gladys is really really emotionally beside herself. And uh, Gladys asked Lola to, to leave the door unlocked so Alvin could come over later, doesn't she? Yes, she does. Yeah, she's waiting for Alvin to come back. Yeah, but uh, Lola locks the door, though, regardless of what she had said, yeah, she, didn't she? She went ahead and locked the door. That's right. Yeah. Now, you write that at uh, about 3.30 p.m., the doctor's truck finally comes into view. So, That's right. The doctor's driving his pickup truck, and he's pulling uh, a horse trailer. He's got his favorite horse, Rex, in the trailer. And uh, uh, he sees Alvin, and he almost drives by, it sounds like, but Alvin flags him down, and the doctor pulled over, and, and he came back, and, and he said, What's the matter, Alvin? And Alvin says, well, uh, I think my fuel pump's gone out. So the doctor leaned over the hood, under the hood, leaned under the hood to look at the engine, see what he could see. And Alvin has this big crescent wrench in his hand that uh, was in the trunk of the car when he bought it. And he uh, slammed the doctor in the head with that crescent wrench and really hit him with a tremendous blow and broke his skull in the process. Uh, the doctor is knocked down, knocked, maybe knocked out briefly. Uh, but when he comes to his senses to a certain extent, he realized that Alvin had hit him. But by this time, Alvin, he, he wants nothing more to do with this. And he gives the doctor a shirt to stop the blood that's coming from his head. And he, he wants to leave. But the doctor realized Alvin hit him, and the doctor rushed Alvin, screaming at him. Alvin then grabbed the shotgun and shot and killed the doctor. Coming by with a load of baled hay. What does Alvin do? Alvin hears his truck coming. Of course, we're out in deserted areas, so you can hear him coming for quite a while. But he hears his truck coming, and he grabs the doctor's body and 
drags it into the barrel pit on the side of the road and uh, uh, kind of behind the cars, the truck comes on by and uh, uh, passes, at which point Alvin then took the body deeper into the sagebrush and, uh, and hid it. But then he had to do something with the doctor's pickup and horse trailer. So he got in the pickup truck and drove it way out, quite a ways out into the sagebrush and parked it. Um, got out, but it, he couldn't bear to leave the horse inside the horse trailer, you know, no. uh, with no food, no water, and, uh, and unprotected, like, you know, just inside the trailer. So he takes the horse out of the trailer and uh, uh, takes it, rode it a little ways, and then tied it to a big sagebrush plant and then hiked back to uh, where his car was. And um, he took his car and he drove away and waited until dark when he could come back and uh, get the body and take it much farther afield and dispose of it in a way that nobody could find. So that was how Alvin handled all that. Once he was done with all that, it's now dark, late at night. He then drives back to Caldwell and knocks on Gladys's window because the door is locked and he tells her it's done. And she says, did you dispose of the evidence? And he said, no, not yet. She said, well, go take care of that. So Alvin then left and, and uh, disposed of all the evidence that he had. Now, October 15th, 1946, you say Mal, maybe I'm mispronouncing this, Malheur County, and you introduce Sheriff Charles Glenn of Vail, Oregon. This is the investigation right. right away. What? How does he look at this right away, this uh, Cheryl, Charles Glenn? Does he think there's some foul play right away? What, what's his first impression about this case? Well, uh, it sounds like he isn't so sure at first. But uh, And you're right, you pronounce it right. It's Malheur County, and uh, he's the sheriff in that county. He gets a call from one of the neighbors. And uh, what happened is, you know, Alvin had tied Rex, the horse, to a big piece of sagebrush. And after the horse tromped around that brush for quite a while, the, he finally pulled the branch loose that he was tied to. And he went running. He ran back to the road. And he was running down the road in the middle of the night. This was late in the morning. Uh, it would be uh, Tuesday morning. And... Uh, uh, and one of the local ranchers is driving along, and he sees the horse, and he recognizes it. Uh, he knows, you know, out in that country, in those times especially, but even today, everybody knows their neighbors. And he was familiar with the horse, so he pulled over and stopped the horse and uh, uh, realized that something was strange about that. So he went looking to see where the doctor might have been. He thought maybe the doctor had been thrown off the horse or something. But uh, he could not find the doctor, but he called the sheriff and told him that he found this horse. Actually, first he called the family. First he called uh, Dr. Broadhurst's family 
and said he'd found the horse. And uh, Gladys, uh, Lola answered the phone, called Gladys to the phone. And uh, this neighbor told Gladys he'd found the horse. And she said, okay, thanks for telling me. And she hung up and she told Lola, well, I think something's happened to the doctor. Then she went back to bed. The next morning, the neighbor uh, called the sheriff and told him about the horse. And all the neighbors in the neighborhood uh, joined in searching for the doctor. It didn't take them too long to find the um, pickup and the horse trailer. And so they knew something had happened to the doctor, but they could not find his body despite searching for several days. In terms of uh, their theory that maybe he had truck problems, when they examined the truck, what was their verdict there? Yeah, it started right up and drove just fine. So it wasn't vehicle problems. Mm -hmm. And by this time, the sheriff, the law is involved. The sheriff, Glenn, uh, got his deputy. And he also got the Ontario, uh, the state trooper who's stationed in Ontario, and even the Ontario city policeman. And uh, uh, they all went out and joined in the search for the body. You talk about that search, and it was extensive and many people involved, and eventually what did they find on, on the highway in terms of evidence that indicated something afoul had happened? Yes, they uh, they found some rocks with blood on it, and so uh, a couple of the neighbors found that, so they, they drove to Vail to show it to the sheriff. By then, it's, it's the end of the day, pretty much, and they took it to show it to the sheriff, and he said, well, that looks like blood to me, but we need to get a pathologist to confirm that. And so uh, he tried one pathologist who wasn't available, and ultimately they chose a pathologist in Boise, Idaho, and, uh, and these um, neighbors drove to Boise and took these rocks to a doctor named Joe Beeman. By the way, I didn't put it in the book, but Joe Beeman was the father of one of my college uh, uh, classmates that I went to college with. At any rate, they they took it uh, took it to Joe Beeman, and he confirmed that it was human blood. At which point they took that back to the sheriff and told him. So now they knew that uh, they most likely had a homicide on their hands. Now, what are the, what? Where do they get their first breaks of evidence from? I mean, you have everything from the, they eventually find the the Model T Ford that Alvin had. But um, tell us how they proceed in finding out information very, very quickly in this investigation. Well, Gladys and Alvin both went to the search scene because they felt like they needed to, they needed to do that to try and, as an alibi, or to show that, that they were interested and so they were there at the search scene, and uh, you have to hand it to the law officers. They observed Gladys, they observed Alvin, they observed kind of how they treated each other, which, of course, was much more circumspect at this time. But um, they, as they learned more about the family and the relationship of the family, uh, they were pretty quick to think that Alvin uh, may have had something to do with this, and maybe Gladys as well. Of course, um, the nephew, Floyd, and his wife, Lola, I think right. also 
uh, gave a lot of information about their misgivings about Gladys to the sheriff. So mm-hmm. it didn't. It wasn't long before they started paying closer attention to Alvin and Gladys and asking them questions and talking to them and trying to assess what their opinions were of them. You write that they, uh, Gladys had purchased a Model A, a 1929 Model A, for Alvin. They found this vehicle, and he admitted it was his vehicle. What was the very interesting um, facts about what they found when they found that car? Well, I, I think it's very odd. You know, Alvin, Gladys told Alvin to get rid of the evidence, and, and you know, anything he had that could have been evidence, he threw in the river, but he had this car. And um, so he decided what he needed to do is change the color of the car. So he went to the hardware store and bought a couple cans of paint and a paintbrush, and he, he brush painted this car and changed its color. which you know i mean that that seems almost comical to me that anyone would think that would really help make a difference especially because by the time the sheriff found the car the paint was still sticky it hadn't even finished drying yet yeah he did a couple other things he changed this tire size from 16 to 21 inch i don't know how much that much difference with the physical appearance but and then there was a a turtle back that was missing. But right. other than that, That's... it was, they had an easy time identifying this vehicle. Like you say, when, when it's black paint, Oh yes. And the paint was found in the car as well. Wasn't it? And the paintbrush. Right. Yeah. He left the can and the brush in the car. Yeah. So, so how do they play this? Like, like you say, this, this sheriff Glenn, uh, and the, uh, Ontario, Oregon State Police, they play this uh, very cautiously. They're not rushing in with this. They're observing. So once they know that looks like Alvin is involved with this, then how do they deal with Gladys? Well, uh, Gladys says she needs Alvin to to drive her out to the ranch. And uh, the sheriff says, well, he can't go with you. Uh, we're talking to him now. But uh, you know, this police officer, he'll be glad to give you a ride. So a policeman drives her out to the ranch. This is the Jordan Valley Ranch, so she can uh, take care of some things there. Uh, they they basically separate Gladys and Alvin from this point on so that they cannot confer, they cannot uh, ask each other questions or give each other any more information. So they keep them separate. Mm-hmm. They take Alvin and they put him in the jail and then they drew a uh, lengthy interrogation of Alvin. You know, he's a young kid. He's 23 years old. He's scared to death. He's not a career c- criminal. He has no experience dealing with police. And uh, it, 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 it takes a, a lot of hours, but only hours before they break him down. Mm-hmm. Now, they don't reveal that information to her and then play it heavy with her. So um, there's a very interesting incident where they're both in the same place risking for the police that they could see each other. Tell us about this, this <laughs> That's right. situation. It's very interesting. Well, Gladys is concocting one 
alibi after another, and uh, she she uh, she comes up with uh, a letter that uh, basically says uh, if you don't give me what I want, the same thing that's going to happen to you that happened to the doctor. And uh, uh, she takes that to her attorney and say, look, this, this letter was slipped under my door and, and I'm scared to death. So she and her attorney go to Vail and go to the sheriff's office to show him this letter. Meanwhile, right, the sheriff's office is in the same building as the courthouse. And, and right there, they're currently getting interrogating Alvin and getting his uh, statement in the same building. So they tell Gladys to wait. Gladys and her attorney wait in some chairs in the foyer. They take Alvin out the side door and get him back to the jail, and then they bring Gladys into the same room where they've been interrogating Alvin where she tells them about this letter. Yeah. And in that interrogation... Amazingly, we spoke about this before the interview. Despite, you would think, that the police would have the power to determine lies from truth better than anyone else, because she's told a lot of doozers, doozies with other people. What does she tell Sheriff Glenn and these officials, remarkably? And regarding what, Dan? Well, just the inheritance and the evil twin. Oh, yeah. and She sticks to her story. You're right. She tells the sheriff about the evil twin, you know, about the $3 million inheritance, the evil twin who's trying to assume her husband's identity. She tries to uh, throw suspicion for the murder of the doctor onto the evil twin and uh, uh, claims that that was him that left the note. And uh, and she sticks to all of her stories, which I find fascinating because uh, it's very easy for the law officers to check the check up on the truthfulness of those stories. But she sticks to them. Let's go back just a little bit because I think very important thing we didn't mention. I think um, is that when she was allowed to go back. Oh, maybe no, no. Um, pardon me. I'm I'm rushing ahead. Uh, let's talk about uh, the interrogation that finally gets her to, uh, not to admit, but finally leads to her arrest. The interrogation of Alvin, you mean? Well, Alvin, he is arrested. But what? How do they finally? He is arrested before. Uh, Gladys is so. What what does it take for that that event where Gladys is finally arrested for murder? Well, uh, uh, I think I failed to mention that when Gladys and her attorney went to Vail with this note, they actually first went to the sheriff in Caldwell, Idaho, and the sheriff took them and went to Vail to show this letter to the um, Malheur County officers, and so when they returned. Um, the, the sheriff uh, interrogated Gladys, asked her some questions, um, took her to her home, and, um, and then ultimately arrested her there in Caldwell, Idaho. So she is put in jail in Idaho. And one of the things I find perplexing about this is why they didn't arrest Gladys when they had her there in Vail. 
when she was in Oregon. Why didn't they just arrest her then? Uh, they must not have felt like they had quite all the evidence nailed down, be my only guess. Because once she's arrested in Idaho, now they have to extradite her from Idaho to Oregon. And so that and just added an extra layer of work on their part. Yeah, and she doesn't doesn't want to cooperate in that regard. Um, I know this might be out of context, but let's talk about the when she goes with she's allowed to go to the home and gather some things from her bedroom, and she's allowed to go into that bedroom by herself. Tell us about this event, why it was allowed, and what does she do once she gets to that house, and the result what she took from that home. Well, after she'd been in jail in, in Idaho for a few days, and she didn't waive extradition, which meant that the state of Oregon had to go through the formal process, which takes quite a bit of time, has to be approved right. by the governor of Idaho. So she's sitting in jail in Idaho, and she tells the sheriff, she says, you know, I need to go back to the ranch and get some fresh clothes. I can't just wear these same clothes all the time. And, uh, and I, find it, I find it amazing that the sheriff agreed. And so the sheriff and his deputy and Gladys and her attorney get in the car, drive from the jail out to her Idaho farm, and then the law officers and the attorney sit in the living room and visit while Gladys goes into her bedroom and closes the door. And so while she's in there, uh, she does a couple of things. Number one, she destroys a bunch of uh, letters and stuffs them down the heat register. And then she takes another bunch. She's got a whole stack of letters and uh, there's a pasteboard box, a cardboard box, kind of a rectangular box that's decorated with poinsettia flowers. And she stuffs all these letters into, into this box and cl closes it up. Then she comes out of the room carrying a, a little suitcase with some clothing in it and this poinsettia box. And the sheriff says to her, well, I don't know what's in that box, but if you take that back to the jail, that's subject to being seized by us. So she turns to her attorney, and at this point, her attorney is an Idaho attorney, and she turns to him, and she says, here, you take this, and she hands that box to him. They return to the jail, and she goes in there with her fresh clothes, but the attorney leaves and takes that box with him. Incredible. Now, this story and this case captivates the imagination of people, not only in the, in the area, but in the state and uh, nationwide. This is a, a sensational uh, story. Um, she needs a defense lawyer, and you mentioned that she just handed her lawyer, I think his name is Groom, um, <laughs> with that poinsettia box. Now, your connection to this story, as we just alluded to in the beginning, is that your grandfather was Gladys's lead defense attorney, and your father was also an attorney uh, in partnership with your grandfather. But, but I say, uh, tell us a little bit about this incredible connection you have to this case. Well, uh, uh, of course, one of the big things that uh, the uh, law officers have to do is they have to determine exactly where the murder occurred because 
it happened very close to the border between Idaho and Oregon. And uh, so once they finally placed the actual site of the murder, it turns out it's in Oregon. And so now the trial, if she's going to be put on trial, and if Alvin's going to be put on trial, it has to happen in Vail, Oregon, which is the county seat of Malheur County. Uh, so she's got her California attorney, DeCoe, that's helped her with her, um, uh, with her marriage issues. She's got her right. Idaho attorney, Groom, but she needs a, an Oregon attorney. And so she hired my grandfather. And uh, I grew up living right next door to my grandparents. My dad and my grandfather were partners in their law office, and our house was right next door to theirs. Uh, my dad, at the time of this trial, uh, had been elected to the House of Representatives in Oregon, so he was in session, and he was not available for the trial, but my grandfather was, and so they hired my grandfather. His name was also Patrick Gallagher, Patrick J. Gallagher, and he went by PJ, and so my granddad... Uh, was her lead defense attorney, and he had the assistance of the California lawyer, DeCoe, and the Idaho lawyer, Groom, and he also hired another Idaho attorney named uh, William Langroisi, who they had a close relationship. So there were four attorneys on the team, but my grandfather was the, the lead attorney. Like I say, it was a sensational trial, but... Um, and it was a vigorous defense. Many motions were trotted out but were defeated. It didn't take long for the jury to make its um, decision, and in California it was a death penalty case. What was the result? What was the result of that trial? Well, uh, I found I, I, I have the entire trial, trial transcript, which took quite a bit of work for me to find, but I got them. And uh, I was very fascinated to read the entire trial. My grandfather never called a single witness. Uh, he interrogated, he cross-examined a lot of the state's witnesses, and he made a lot of motions. And, uh, you know, I, I think one of the interesting things in the book is when you read it, uh, judge how granddad did, you know, was, did he make the right choice to not call any mm -hmm. witnesses? And, and if he had wanted to, who would he have called and what would they have said, you know? Um, mm -hmm. Uh, but I think that his plan, his method of defense was to try and discredit the witnesses that the state put forth. Uh, however, he was overruled in all those attempts. Um, so um, uh, she was convicted. And in Oregon, as you mentioned, at this time, um, first-degree murder, which is what she was convicted of, carried an automatic penalty of death by uh, lethal injection, the, ga the gas chamber, I mean, death by the gas chamber. Uh, however, the jury did have the option of requesting life instead of execution. Right. And for women, up to this point, they had never executed a woman. And so um, all juries seem to favor life for women, and that's what this jury did is they uh, elected to convict her with a request for life in prison. And you say they were, they were paroled, uh, one was nine, uh, she was paroled after nine years, and he was paroled after ten years, and she was only 50 years old when she was released, uh, I believe. 
interestingly, you write, in, near the end of this, you write that she wrote someone from the past in 1961 and a letter similar to the one she wrote to Dr. Broadhurst back in the day. Who was this person that she wrote and eventually married? Well, that was our friend Leo that we talked about earlier. Uh, you know, and again, this is why I really believe that she knew Leo back when she was married to Leslie back in Sacramento. She contacted mm-hmm. Leo and, uh, and, and ultimately married him. And they moved to Sacramento. She remained married to Leo the rest of her life and died while they were still married in Sacramento. Yeah, interesting. The poinsettia box, you write about this, and not at the beginning of the book, interestingly, and I know the reader will know why, but this poinsettia box and your inheritance, tell us about this. Well, my father died in 1980. That's 40 years ago now. Uh, when he died, I inherited a family trunk that he had inherited from his parents. And uh, it was kind of a half steamer trunk. It was about half the length of a normal steamer trunk. And it was full of family family memorabilia. There were uh, photos of my dad and his siblings when they were kids. Uh, a lot of family letters. My grandfather uh, spent time back in Washington, D.C. as a lobbyist. And uh, while he was gone, he wrote a lot of letters to the family. And they were all kept in there and, and letters from other family members. But buried in the very bottom of that trunk was this pasteboard box decorated with poinsettia flowers. And that was the same box that Gladys had turned to her attorney and handed, you know, now 73 years ago. And that box has been buried ever since then. And you provide information that has never been seen as you write for 70 years. That's right. That's right. That is at all. Nobody's seen this stuff, and that becomes the backbone of my book. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Uh, what was the overall take Again, when we look at this as a sensational trial, was there any sympathy for Alvin at all uh, in his depiction? And how was Gladys portrayed at that time? Well, Gladys was the evil one, the embodiment of evil. Uh, I think one of the big challenges for the attorneys was to find uh, jurors who would be impartial in making a judgment on this case because this was big news. It was a big deal. It was uh, in all the newspapers in the area. And as you mentioned earlier, even nationwide, uh, I've Googled and found newspaper articles from the Boston Globe and from a newspaper in Phoenix, Arizona, and from a newspaper in Spokane, Washington, about this trial that were dated back at the time of the trial. So it was, it was big news. And uh, it was, um, I think, uh, a subject of conversation in most households of the day. And Gladys was the evil one. Alvin, you know, I mean, he was a murderer. Um, There's no question about that. 
But I think even the law recognized that he never would have done that had he not been influenced to do it by Gladys. And that's why they allowed him to plead guilty to second-degree murder, which carried a life sentence, but no possibility of execution. And, uh, and so, you know, she was convicted of first-degree murder. He pled guilty to second-degree murder. They both served their sentence in the same prison. Of course, not on the same side because they're different genders, but uh, uh, they both were in prison in Salem. Uh, he got, he, they both had life. She was paroled after nine years. He was paroled after 10 years. And, uh, and the community was irate when she was paroled after only nine years. And they, they just couldn't believe that this evil woman who had so plotted so carefully and to, for a great amount of time the death of her husband and, and did all she could to influence it to occur, she, they were just appalled that she could get out of prison already, and yet she did. Absolutely. It was a, it's a fascinating story, Till Death Do Us, a true crime story of bigamy and murder. It's been a fascinating interview, and it's an incredible book. Patrick Gallagher, thank you very much. Is there a Facebook page that people might take a look, um, more information about this book, Till Death Do Us? Yes. Of course, the book is available on Amazon. It's also available through the publisher's website, wildbluepress.com. Uh, and I have a, a Facebook page. It's Patrick Gallagher Author. And uh, uh, you're welcome to go on there and, and it gives information about the book and uh, shows a picture of the cover. And uh, I'll be happy to answer anybody's questions if you have any. That's great. Thank you so much, Patrick Gallagher, Till Death Do Us, A True Crime Story of Bigamy and Murder. Thank you very much. You have a great evening. Thank you. Good night. Thank, thank you. Bye. Good night. Good night.